Well, today, we are continuing our study in the book of Acts, and we're looking at the end of Paul's missionary journey here. So we've been in the first missionary journey, and it's coming to its conclusion. And I've entitled today's sermon, What is the Gospel? And I think this is an important question for us as we're here. If you're here, you're listening to us online, this is an important question for us. If you're here and you're not a believer, then perhaps you're asking this question skeptically or maybe even you're curious about this truth. What is the gospel, right? Maybe you're searching and trying to figure out what this looks like. Maybe you're here as you're in a believer and you're trying to already answer this question, right? Like it's not a multiple choice quiz. You're already thinking, well, what does it mean by what is the gospel, right? What am I supposed to say? What's my answer? Where am I going here? Now, most importantly, you're probably saying, well, Walter, why, why is this question important? Like, it seems like it's a simple, basic, almost elementary question. What, what could you possibly have to say about this today? I think it's true that it's a very simple question, but I think it's a crucial question for us to understand, a crucial question for us to answer. So I'm going to make a statement for you, and I think it's something we have to remember You see, our ability to live and thrive in this world is always going to equal our clarity, our view of the gospel. You see, our ability to live and thrive in this world will always equal our clarity and view of the gospel. You see, what we think about the gospel, when we answer the question, what is the gospel, that is going to determine how we live in this world. You see, for some people who follow Jesus, they get too concerned about these ideas about how we live, and they move into legalism. The old statement, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't cuss, and you don't associate with those that do, that is legalism. That is saying that the way I'm going to live is going to be completely defined by rules and regulations. What the gospel means is that I am embracing bondage and separation from everything. Now, on the other end of that spectrum, we have people who claim to follow Jesus, and where they end up is that they don't care at all about how they live. They live in what we describe as hedonism. Anything at all goes. Anything is fair game. I can do whatever I desire. There's no consequences to worry about. Anything goes because ultimately God's going to forgive me anyway. As you hear those, you have to think that Neither one of those is right. Neither one of those is the answer. To live in such a way we don't care about anyone but ourselves that's actually the secret to both of those. That we care about no one but ourselves. That's not the gospel. That amazing grace that we've just sung about is not concerned about these rules and regulations and focusing on ourselves. That amazing grace that we just sung about is not concerned about living our lives to have pleasure and joy continuously and constantly. No, that amazing grace is concerned about one thing and one thing only. Our relationship to the Creator. Yes, it guides how we live. Yes, it directs how we speak, how we act. But most importantly, it first fixes that relationship between us and the creator of the universe. 
ultimately when we do not have clarity on the gospel, we get into difficult places as individuals, as churches, as a movement of God. What we're going to see today in Acts chapter 15 is we're going to see the church getting into some confusion about the gospel. We're going to see that they've lost some of this clarity and they begin to go into a place that's a little difficult, that's a little painful, that requires them to take a step back and go, what is truly important here in our ministry? What is the crucial thing that God is concerned about? What they determine, what they see, is that God is concerned about his relationship to individual people. He's concerned about what's on the inside. And so when we ask this question, what is the gospel? We are asking this question of what is the gospel and what is it doing between you and your creator? Now, as we look at this text, it's a rather lengthy passage, and to save your legs on this warm summer day, we're not going to read the whole thing at once. We'll read a few chunks at a time. But I want to draw your attention to our first point that we see here, is that we see confusion about the gospel. Look with me at Acts 15, beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and by the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So right here, we've encountered this confusion about the gospel. As we begin our study of the passage today, we are encountering this confusion. We're jumping into the middle of the story, and we've got to get some context. If you remember from last week, Pastor Craig Tuck led us through Acts chapter 14. And we end that section with Paul and Barnabas teaching in Antioch, and they've just wrapped up their first missionary journey. Overall, things seem to be going well. God has moved and blessed abundantly in their missionary journey. Paul's been rescued from probable death by God. Good things seem to be happening, but we encounter this confusion. You see, we have these men who are coming down from Judea, and they're teaching what is, in essence, a different gospel to these people. You see, these men are saying that if you are not circumcised according to the law, you cannot be saved. These men were called Judaizers. You see, they thought that you needed to follow all of the Mosaic law to be right with God. You see, their position is essentially that in order for Gentiles to become Christians, first, they must become good Jewish followers of God who are obeying every element of the Mosaic law, and then after that, they would be allowed to come 
to Christ. If you've read the book of Galatians this year, this is the idea that Paul's writing about in the book of Galatians. This is what he's concerned about. This is where we get this statement that what they're proclaiming is a false gospel because Paul, in the book of Galatians, speaks out against this clearly and he says, this is a false gospel. He goes on to even boldly say that, hey, even if an angel were to come saying it's from the Lord and he gives you a gospel that is different than the one that we proclaim to you, ignore him, he's a heretic. He speaks very boldly against this, proclaiming there is one true gospel. Now, obviously, as you can imagine, you've got some men coming in proclaiming what Paul would describe as a false gospel. That would lead to, naturally, some controversy, some debate, some discussion around this. Well, it doesn't lead to just some. It causes a huge debate with Paul and Barnabas here. As I said, Paul describes this idea as a false gospel in the book of Galatians. He makes it very clear through the book of Galatians that a man is not justified by observing the law, but what? What is he justified by? A man is justified by his faith in Jesus. You see, what's happening here with the Judaizers, with this relationship, is that They're adding something to the gospel, and it looks like it's an effort to justify ourselves by works in some way. And if you can put yourself in those shoes, right? I mean, let's think about the power of this gospel. I mean, this gospel is incredible. It's offering complete and total forgiveness. It's offering eternal life. I mean, it's offering everything in a bag of chips. I mean, it has it all. And this gospel is so incredible that, of course, the God who offers it must want some type of payment. There must be something that we would have to do to earn this grace or pay this debt off. But this is thinking about grace and the good news of the gospel in human terms. This idea couldn't be further from the meaning of the gospel and of grace. See, this overlooks the very meaning, the very idea of grace. Do you know what the definition of grace is? Undeserved blessing. This is you walking into the bank to pay your mortgage payment, and someone's paid it in full, and you have no idea who it is because they don't tell you and they don't care. This is you walking into the hospital to pay your surgical bill, and guess what? It's been paid in full. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but yet it has been paid in full. We can do nothing to earn this grace that has been given to us. Furthermore, this grace doesn't need us to add anything to it to make it perfect. It is perfect. As you can see, we've got a problem here. So Paul and Barnabas, as they're dealing with this, I, I think very, I think Luke has a sense of humor and he writes that, that Paul and Barnabas have no small dissension and debate with them. If you've ever read the book of Galatians, it's not a small dissension and debate. Paul's very unhappy with these guys. Um, clue you in, he's angry. It's one of the angriest books we can read in the Bible because Paul is livid that someone would proclaim something so contrary to the gospel. And I think Luke's underplaying it here. There was no small dissension debate. No, this was a big problem. 
as they wrestle with this, they realize that they can't come to a decision on their own. They're clashing over it. They can't figure it out. And they recognize this is going to affect not just the people here in Antioch, but the church as a whole. And they cannot weigh on this on their own. So Paul and Barnabas are sent with other believers to go to Jerusalem. And there they discuss it with the full council of the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. As they go, they're not just wasting their trip to go there, right? We got a place to go. We got to get there. We're not stopping anywhere but to use the bathroom, right? Like we're going. No, they stop and they encourage churches along the way with this news that salvation has come to the Gentiles. And even in this midst, when they arrive in Jerusalem, they're welcomed with what seems to be joy from the apostles and elders. They are happy to see these men who are coming with news of the work of the Lord and the Gentiles. Yet, even in this celebratory moment, the confusion strikes again from the Judaizers, proclaiming their message. They say again, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the laws of Moses. It's clear to us that we have people who are simply confused about what the gospel means. This isn't a new idea in our world today. As Solomon has told us back in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. History's over here sitting in a corner saying, don't make me repeat myself because this is what we're seeing. The same things come up in our world every day. We live in a very confused world today. It's very clear to us that our world is confused. There are disjointing ideas. There's many things happening. That even for us in the church, we recognize the reality that we live in a very confused church. That the church culture itself is confused. An example of this is for me growing up in Chesterfield, South Carolina. That's your shout out for the year, right? Growing up in a small town, rural country churches, this is what I heard most commonly. That if you do good enough, if you do enough good, you're going to be made right with God. Can you see the problem with that? That's entirely a works-based salvation. That if you do enough good, you're going to be made right with God. It sounds really nice, right? I mean, it's a, it's a good truth, right? If, if my good outweighs my bad in some way, shape, or form, I'm going to be okay. But you see, here's the truth. That is a lie from Satan himself. You and I cannot be good enough to make things right with God. Only one man was good enough to make things right with God, and his name is Jesus. You see, you might be able to think of several other things that have been, been stated. You know, I can remember things like, you better have your fun now, boys, because when you follow Jesus, you got to be on the straight and narrow. Like, how does that make any sense, right? Have a good time now and then get right with the Lord. That what we're seeing is this element of hedonism. Live your life, God's going to forgive it, but as long as you get right with the Lord, things are okay. I know that you can think of other things you've heard growing up in your time in the church that just aren't true. They're lies, they're falsehoods, they're false gospels. As you consider this, you can see that 
these things are ultimately trying to elevate us into having some contribution to our salvation. These things are intended to show that we do something to make our salvation happen. We are contributing to, we are working in this. Here's the truth. The truth is the only thing that we've contributed to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's all that we've done. That's all we've brought to the table. We are not good people who've made some bad choices, who are now choosing to be good again. No, we are dead people who've been made alive in Christ. What are dead people good for? For staying dead. That is the position that we have. That is what we offer that is to our benefit here. That's all we can offer is this sin that made salvation necessary. You see, this confusion is dangerous to the church and to its people. It can endanger souls. It can cause conflict where it's not necessary. That's why the early church responds so quickly to this because they see this division coming. It's spreading. They're having to recognize that they've got to have an answer on what is the gospel. Must we add these things to fulfill the gospel? Should we trust in Jesus alone? What is the answer? Well, here, beginning in verse 6, they begin to give us clarity on the gospel. They give us clarity about what the gospel is. Look with me, beginning in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to him, said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. As we continue in our passage, we see that this church begins to arrive at clarity about the gospel. See, the apostles and elders with these representatives from both sides have gathered together to discuss this issue and it implies there's been much time, much debate, and Peter is standing up to address this gathered group. And Peter speaks of God sending him to the Gentiles back in Acts chapter 10. You might remember just a few short months ago where Cornelius and his family had the gospel proclaimed to them by Peter. Where Cornelius has a dream and he says, go to this town and tell this man to come speak to you. And Peter has a vision, well, okay, I'm going to go talk to this guy named Cornelius, right? And Cornelius trusts and believes in the good news of the gospel. See, Peter references this moment of God calling him to share the gospel with Cornelius. And he indicates that God has indeed blessed the Gentiles with receiving the gospel. He's reminding them of what he has learned from this, recognizing that God is looking at the heart, not at external matters when it comes to salvation. That if he was concerned about external things, he never would have brought the gospel to Cornelius. 
Instead, because Cornelius was upright, a man of honor who worshipped God, even though he didn't know all the things he was supposed to do, God blessed him. He sent Peter to proclaim the good news of the gospel to him. See, what Peter is saying is that God has proven his work in Cornelius and the Gentiles by granting them the gift of his spirit. This is important here because God's only going to give the spirit to those that he approves of, right? How can you have the spirit of God if you are not being justified by God? And so Peter is proclaiming that they've received the same spirit of the Jews. And as such, they are on equal footing with the Jews in the faith. He's saying they don't need to do anything extra to receive the salvation. Peter concludes his speech with a rather strong answer to this debate. He proclaims that this yoke of the law being used, it must end. So that God had accepted the Gentiles at Cornelius' house without any of these requirements. He's saying, how can Jewish Christians demand anything more from God? How can they ask for him to require anything else of these people? He's saying, how can they demand anything beyond the faith that has already been shown? Peter also warns them that if they persist in this, that they would be fighting against God's declared will and they would have to deal with the consequences of this disobedience unless they withdraw from this position. Peter is very clear that salvation comes from faith, believing in the saving grace of the Lord Jesus. There is nothing else that is necessary to add to this but faith in Jesus. I think it's interesting that Peter is so, so clear and so bold here. You see, in Galatians, there is an encounter with Paul when we believe that the book of Galatians was written sometime between the time of Acts 11 and Acts 15. Paul has an issue with Peter because Peter is visiting with the church in Galatia and there are some Judaizers there who are proclaiming this false gospel. And Paul speaks out against Peter because Peter goes along with it. In fact, according to Paul, he feels the need to speak out against Peter because Peter is treating some of the Gentile Christians, including Barnabas, differently because of the influence of the Judaizers. He says that he treats them in a different way. Now, you might say, well, why is that interesting? Why is that important? Well, I think it's interesting. I think it's important because though Peter has clearly stumbled in the past and not gotten it all right, because remember, Peter's our punching boy. We like to make fun of him. Even though he has messed up, even though he has made mistakes, he doesn't let his mistakes compound and build. You see, he deals with them, and he pursues righteousness right here. You see, it's clear that his time with Cornelius was memorable. It changed him. That we're talking about this time of Cornelius maybe as much as ten years in the past in the story of, book, of that book of Acts. Yet, it's obvious that he believes that the Lord moved and did something miraculous to bring Cornelius and his family to the faith. It would seem to me like, though he has stumbled, though he has made mistakes, that the way his speech is portrayed here, that he has never forgotten the move of God on that day, which is perhaps why he stands so firmly on this issue. 
You see, what we get here in this section from the words of Peter is clarity on the gospel. When we get fuzzy on the gospel, when static starts to creep in, we start to get fuzzy and static on a lot of other things. You can't build a house on sand with no real foundation and expect it to last, right? No builder would let you do that. You see, clarity on the gospel is essential for us to have a foundation that will not be swept away. So as we consider this, what is the gospel, right? What is the gospel message that they are proclaiming here, that they are saying that these Gentiles have believed, that these Jewish Christians have believed? Simply put, we believe that God created the universe. He's king over all, and that he created the heavens and the earth, and he filled the earth with his creations, but there is one special creation. Man. See, man was created with, with a soul. We were created with a soul and with a purpose. We were created in his image to know him, and to worship Him. We were given power to rule and reign over this earth, and everywhere we were to go, the image of God was to be on display so He could look down and see His people reflecting His goodness and glory back to Him. Yet, as it so often does in the middle of our history, man, specifically Adam and Eve, they chose to sin by not following God's commands. They chose disobedience, and their sin not only ruined them and saw them cast out from the garden, but it made us all guilty of sin. As if that's not bad enough that we're guilty of someone else's sin here, we've all sinned in our own power as well. That every one of us is guilty of sin. This sin is that we have heard the standard of God, and we've chosen to ignore it, or chosen to actively work in disobedience in comparison to that standard. Because of our sin, we cannot have a relationship with God. We've broken this relationship and we can't approach Him. If that's not bad enough, we cannot make things right on our end. There's nothing we can do to pay this debt. There's nothing we can do to make it right. No money, no offerings, there's nothing we can do. And then Jesus comes into the story. He comes into the story to make it right. He's the perfect substitution for us. He is right in all the ways that we were wrong. He's fully man and fully God. And he pays the debt of sin upon the cross for us if we believe in him. If we place our faith in God, we receive this gift of grace salvation nothing else is needed to receive this undeserved gift you see this is what peter is saying we believe in this is what peter is saying the gospel is that we've trusted in jesus and yes there are ways that we must live to honor that to be obedient to that but we need nothing more but the, to offer our faith to him, to say, I trust in Jesus to receive this free gift of grace, this salvation. 
Now, it seems as if the church is finding clarity on this issue. What, what's their response to this? What are the results of this decision? Look with me at verse 12. We'll see that the results of the gospel here. Verse 12 reads, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. As we look at our last section of the passage today, we encounter a quiet room in verse 12. The gathered crowd is silent after Peter's speech. And into this silence, Paul and Barnabas begin to speak again. They've shared their testimony of what God has done to the leaders earlier and now they're speaking again of what God has done in the Gentiles. As an aside, I think it's interesting that Paul and Barnabas don't have a whole lot to do here in this section. You see, the only times that it's recorded to speak is that they are sharing their testimony of the work of God among the Gentiles. They're not even the ones who make the arguments about why the Gentiles should be a part of the family, right? That it's Peter and James, the Jewish believers, who are making these arguments on their behalf. Peter we know of. James this is our first time encountering him. This is James, the brother of Jesus, the man that we believe wrote the book of James, right? If that's true, you can see some threads and some thoughts moving forward there. Regardless, after they've shared their testimony, James begins to speak and he offers his opinions on this matter. See, Peter has made his argument on his personal experience of seeing God move among the Gentiles. He's saying, this is what I've seen. This is what the Lord has done. How can we say he's not blessing it? James take this, takes this argument even further, and he begins to offer a scriptural grounding for this for the gathered body. He's saying that the Lord has predicted this, even in the Old Testament, that he would bring the Gentiles into the fold. You see, James starts with this, uh, interesting phrase that he's saying, take, them from, take from them a people for his name. He begins with this phrase that's commonly used for Israel, and he's starting to make an argument here that in Christ, Jews and Gentiles have been brought together into a single people for his name. He then quotes in verses 16 and 17 from Amos chapter 9. And here he's making the core of his scriptural argument. See, this passage that he quotes is pointing to this idea of all nations seeking the Lord. See, James is linking this idea of all nations 
which are called by my name, with this idea of a people by my name. James is saying that essentially, in the Gentiles, God was choosing a people for himself, a new, restored people of God. See, he's bringing both Jew and Gentile together to form what James is describing as the true Israel. He's saying the family of God is now complete because both Jews and Gentiles have been united together in it. This rebuilt tent of David is fulfilled in Christ who's establishing a kingdom that's going to last forever. So these promises from the Old Testament to David in particular are fulfilled in Christ and James is making the argument that these promises always intended to have these Gentiles as a part of them. That even before God fully established the Davidic covenant and the promises in 2 Samuel, he is telling the people of Israel, hey, by the way, all nations will call me father. See, God was planning this from the very beginning, and James understands that truth, that this is a part of God's great plan. We've got this powerful series of arguments from Peter and James about the nature of the Gentiles' relationship with the church. And it leads to a natural question for us that everyone has gathered, they assent that indeed if God is pleased with this, then what should we require for these Gentiles to be members? This is ultimately the question that's being asked by the Judaizers and by the church as a whole. And James ultimately agrees with Peter here that he says that the Gentiles should not be burdened with the law and circumcision. He says they're not coming to their faith from the law. They're coming to their faith from Jesus. However, he says, he answers the question, how can these Jewish Christians who are observing some of their ritual laws here, how can they relate to these Gentile Christians without having problems? That's where we get this list of these four things, abstaining from idols, sexual morality, strangulation from blood, talking to these different things. These are the core of the Jewish ritual law. In essence, many Jewish Christians are holding to these as guideposts for how to live. They're saying that, yes, I follow Jesus, but there are certain things that I feel that I must do to continue that relationship. You see, this is a recognition that we experience the same thing in our culture today. For many churches, for many Christians, we have the stated or unstated expectation that you shouldn't drink, for instance, right? Most Baptist churches, as we do, hold to that position as a standard. Not every Christian holds to that standard. And if we're being honest there, if we're recognizing this reality, there is a tension to manage there that James is speaking to for the Gentile church. For the Jewish church. He's making the argument that you're going to have to bend and flex on these items. Now what he's mean is that you're not going to compromise your faith. But he's saying this. That if you know your brother has a problem with drinking, then should you abstain from drinking to make them comfortable? Yes. He's saying that, hey, Gentile Christians... You need to know what you're getting into because some people come from different expectations and experience. And he's simply saying that for this to work, you are going to have to flex and give on a couple of things so that you can have fellowship with these people. Now James ends with this note here in verse 21 that 
is ultimately saying that morality is not the issue here. They're not doing this to be righteous. They're not doing this so they can earn salvation. They're simply doing this to try and live out the moral requirements of the law. All Christians are required to uphold the moral elements of the law. These are things like the Ten Commandments, right? Like we don't throw them out just because we follow Jesus. No, we still honor our parents. It's still a problem if you want to murder, like just in case you didn't know, that's a problem for us. Yes, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments in particular speak towards that, but Jesus affirms those things. Ultimately, they're getting to this idea of a fellowship, right? How do people of different experiences, different backgrounds, different understandings relate and connect together in a healthy way? And James is ultimately appealing to the Old Testament here because he's saying that it addresses it. If you remember back into our study of Leviticus, let's be honest, you don't remember Leviticus, it's fine. But looking back in Leviticus, in chapters 17 and 18, the writers of Leviticus answer those questions. They talk about how the resident alien, those who come dwell in Israel, should honor the Lord. Those two chapters are addressing these issues. You see, the point of these laws, both in the Old Testament, the point of these suggestions here in the New Testament, they're to ensure that, yes, the community is pure, but two, there can be social interaction between these people of different cultures. See, the result of the gospel is that we know what we believe and we know how to interact with others. The result of having clarity on the gospel is that we know what we believe and we know how to interact with others. And so they end this section with recognizing that the salvation of the Gentiles is affirmed. This gathered group, they affirm the true message of the gospel and they celebrate the goodness of God for his kindness in bringing it both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. This leads me to a final question for you and I simply ask this question, what is your view of the gospel? Perhaps I can say it more clearly, is what is the gospel to you? Is it a set of rules and regulations that you have to follow to earn your salvation? Is it a free gift of grace that's been given to you, an undeserving person? Is it just an abstract series of facts that you know that you're familiar with? Perhaps you think it's a fairy tale and it's just a made-up story. Simply put, my question for you is, what is the gospel to you? Do you hold it tightly as life given to an undeserved sinner? Or do you view it as something else? As you remember from earlier, we recognize that our ability to live and thrive in this life is directly equal to our view of the gospel. If you view the gospel as life that has been given to an undeserved sinner, you'll live your life as a repentant follower of Jesus, boldly proclaiming the good news that he has saved a wretch like you. If you view it as a series of regulations and rules, you'll tell everybody the way they need to live while you're not living that way yourself. If you view it as a fairy tale, you'll view life as just this collection of random events that are coming together to lead to the road of nowhere. I simply ask, what is the gospel to you? My hope and my prayer is that the gospel to you is that it's forgiveness being offered to an undeserved sinner.
someone who is in desperate need of grace and kindness from the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here in this time, you'll have opportunity to determine what the gospel is to you. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll pray to close us, and our worship team will lead us in a time of worship celebrating the goodness of Christ. And here in the next few minutes, you have an opportunity to decide what is the gospel to you. My hope and my prayer is that your answer would be that the gospel is light and life to me. The gospel is salvation being brought to a wretched sinner in need of grace. If you would, can we go to the Lord in prayer?